can't tell you what a joy it is for me to be here. Uh, I, uh, I always felt that the happiest thing that happened to me after I came to Jesus Christ is to find my wife. Uh, but the happiest period, humanly speaking, the happiest period of my life was before I got married, when I was a student here. I'm so grateful. I see two of my teachers, Dr. Coleman and Dr. Oswald here. Both of them had a huge influence on me. And so I'm very, very grateful to be able to come and speak here. Uh, today I'm going to speak on the whole affirmation that we make that Jesus is truth. Tomorrow I want to talk about some of the challenges to that and how we respond in a pluralistic world, how we respond to those challenges. And on Thursday, I want to speak about how our witness goes out, uh, winsome witness in a secular society. So um, uh, today, let's start with this statement of Jesus, that he's the way, the truth, and the life. Um, few Christian beliefs have been challenged as much as this belief in the uniqueness of Christ. It seems arrogant, not helpful, in a world of ethnic and religious strife. Uh, exclusion, it's, it's speaking of exclusion in an already fragmented world. And yet Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So today I want to look at that claim that he is the truth. You notice that he didn't say, I am true. In which case he would be saying, my teaching is true. Instead, he says, I am the truth. In other words, truth is defined by reference to Jesus. Of course, there is truth elsewhere. There is truth in all religions. Uh, theology explains this using words like general revelation or common grace. Uh, people using God-given abilities can achieve great heights of truth, of knowledge, of discovery. Uh, my neighbors are very devout Muslims. And my wife was uh, sick. She got cancer some years ago. Thank God she's okay now. But um, when she got sick, my Muslim neighbors were better neighbors to me than I have ever been to any neighbor. And I've told them that. They taught me about good neighborliness. So there is, there is truth everywhere. But Jesus is claiming something more than this. He claims to be ultimate truth. And so he says, no one comes to the Father except by me. So what we are saying is that Jesus is absolute truth. And by that we mean that he is so real, so important, his truth is so important, so complete, so perfect, and so necessary that all people everywhere need to respond to it. It's absolute in the sense that it's for everyone. Everyone needs to hear this message. The next slide, please. Uh, religious pluralism says, however, that absolute truth cannot be known. Therefore, you can't insist that all have to accept and submit to the Lordship of Jesus. Uh, this truth is not for all people everywhere. So, for example, when people say our religion is unique, 
they say it's like me saying Christ, uh, cricket is the greatest sport there is. Now, it happens to be true, <laughs> but I won't insist on it for lesser mortals in the USA. <laughs> Here, perhaps in this part of the world, you might say that basketball is the greatest sport there is. <laughs> And what both are saying is true. Cricket is the greatest sport for some Sri Lankans. Basketball is the greatest sport for some Americans. But when we say, so, so they say that when we say Christ is unique, that's what we mean. He's unique to the Christians. But we are speaking about a different kind of uniqueness. We are saying that he is absolute in that he's for everyone. When Paul was speaking to the pluralistic Athenians, he said in Acts 17 and verse 30, God commands all people everywhere to repent. And then he gives a reference point to that repentance. He says, because he has fixed a day to judge the world by a man he has appointed. And then he says, he has given proof of this by raising him from the dead. So it's absolute, it's for everyone. Now we are not saying that our understanding is absolute. Our knowledge is incomplete. We are going to be learning until the day we die. And we have a lifetime of study, of new discoveries made all the time. That's why we can't be arrogant. We can be happy. We can be thrilled. We can be excited about the truth. But we can't be arrogant. Because there's so much more that we have to learn. But we have come to know this absolute truth. Because absolute truth is a person. And this, this knowledge is experienced exp, uh, this is in, in a relationship. Um, so uh, I think we can thank postmodernism and the charismatic movement. And earlier centuries, the, the Wesleyan movement for highlighting the importance of personal experience. Belief is not just assenting to some dry facts. It is entrusting ourselves to a person based on those facts. We learned about him, so the facts are important. We believed what we learned, and we entrusted ourselves based on that. And we entered into a relationship with Jesus, the truth. Dr. Stanley Jones talks about a man who was dying, a doctor who was dying, and somebody was explaining the gospel to him, and suddenly light dawned. He said, all this time, I thought that the question was what to believe, and now I realize that it is whom to trust. Of course, we believe on somebody, we trust in somebody because of the facts we know about him, so the facts are important, but we know him who is the truth. Next slide, please. How can we make such a stupendous claim? Well, Jesus shows us how in the verses that follow, verse 6 of John 14. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. He's claiming to be equal to, to God. In verse 9, he says, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
How can you say, show us the Father? Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Four times he is making this affirmation that he is equal to God. Verse 7 would have been a startling statement to these disciples. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jews said that no one has seen God. In fact, you can't see God and live. You will die. The Greeks said God is invisible. Jesus is saying, if you have seen me, you see God. Religious pluralism says that each religion discovered a facet of the absolute God out of their experience. So they speak of the Hindu conception of God, the Buddhist conception of reality, or the Christian conception of God. Jesus is claiming to be God. Not only giving a parcel conception, he is God himself. I was once traveling uh, in a train and I was chatting to the person next to me. Uh, he was a devout Buddhist, and we were in, in the midst of our chatting. He realized that I was a Christian preacher going to a very non-Christian area. So he told me, why is it that you people want to convert us? Can't you let us live our life well, better, and you live your life better? I told him, you know, we believe there's a God who created this world. And that this God has given an answer to the problems of this world. And we have found this answer. Now we must give it to everybody. He's the creator. The uniqueness of Christ is based on the deity of Christ. Because he's God. The next play, uh, slide, please. Now this is an amazing claim. How can we accept that Jesus is God? Well, Jesus says in verse 10 that his words affirm his deity. Do, no, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. In other words, he's saying that the works of Jesus are the words of Jesus are the works of God. The works show, the, the words show that he is the truth, that he is God. When Jesus speaks, it's like God speaking. Uh, the granddaughter of, um, uh, of Charles Darwin, Francis Cornford, was a British poetess, and uh, she, uh, she had been brought up to believe that uh, uh, religion was good for some people, but not for the Darwins. They didn't need religion. Uh, her children began to ask some awkward questions about religion. So she, for information, turned to the New Testament. And she told a friend, I have been reading the gospel, and I find that the things that Jesus said about God are true. The words of Jesus had an amazing attraction to them. A person was studying the uh, gospel, English, studying English using the gospel. And he suddenly got up and he said, these are not the words of a man. These are the words of God. His words were attractive. And then he made some amazing claims. He directly claimed 
to have authority to forgive sins, which only God can do. He didn't say, follow my teaching. He said, follow me. That was not how the other leaders talked. When the Buddha was dying, his disciples came to him and said, uh, how can we remember you? And he said, don't remember me. What is important is the teaching. You remember the teaching. When Jesus was dying, he said, do this to remember me. Because people had to follow him. He assumed functions and actions that, uh, that are described for God in the Old Testament, like he's the judge of eternity, of humanity. He's the uh, people's eternal destiny, depended on him. He accepted titles that were given to God in the Old Testament, like Lord and the Good Shepherd, and most importantly, uh, God himself, he, he, he claimed to be God. In different ways, he did this. The uniqueness of Christ is not something that we ascribe to Jesus. It is something that he confronts us with, whether we have, we have to accept it or reject it. His opponents, of course, realized that, and they took stones to kill him. The disciples could not, because for them, if they said that Jesus was claiming to be God, uh, it's, it, they are attributing blasphemy to God, uh, to Jesus. So they, they, they couldn't get this for some time. Uh, it's like somebody says, uh, Dr. Timothy Tennant claimed never to have sinned. Well, those who don't like Timothy Tennant would say, I told you, he's a, he's a hypocrite. But those who like him would say, no, no, he couldn't have said a thing like that. And I think it's the same thing that happened with the disciples. They found it difficult to accept that Jesus was claiming to be God. But the resurrection, of course, changed all of that. And they realized it. He is true. The next slide. How can we believe then the words of Jesus? Well, his word works authenticate his deity. Jesus said, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. His life, his miracles tell us that this was no normal human being. When people questioned his, um, his right to forgive, he performed a miracle. And he said, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. I say to you, rise pick up your bed and go home. Now, this was a unique combination. Words, life, and miracles. There are others whose words claim to have God, to be God. And they also perform miracles. But what is missing is the life. And, and sadly, today, because uh, holiness is often associated with power, they ignore that. And so when a guru is sent to prison for for raping people. Thousands of people rise up in protest because for them holiness is power. But in the life of Jesus you find words, works, and a spotless life. A beautiful combination. The next slide. The truth of Jesus then is both seen and heard. 1 John 1.3 says, what we have heard what we have, which we have seen with our eyes and touched with our hands. What we have seen 
and heard, we proclaim to you. Jesus is the truth, both through his words and through his life. I think today this is desperately needed for our witness. People find our belief in the uniqueness of Christ so repulsive. And that was the same during Christ's time. But, but they will be challenged by our life. Uh, you know, uh, so, some people, of course, say that the life of Jesus is, not, is enough. Uh, if you, and in the same way, if we live the Christian life, that's enough. Uh, people quote St. Francis of Assisi, having said, as having said, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Uh, his biographer, Mark Galley, says, it's almost certain that he never said that. Uh, and certainly he never lived it. Because if you look at his life, Galley says, during his day, he was known as much for his preaching as for his lifestyle. Uh, you find him pleading with people to repent. There is a content to the gospel that is so unique, so different to the way people think that actions are insufficient to explain what lies behind the heart of the truth of Jesus. We need to speak. They need to hear the word. Let me just apply this to what I think is the greatest evangelistic challenge we have in the world today. This is what I might call the Islamic challenge. In 2010, uh, they were 23% of the world's population. Uh, and Christians were 31%. Uh, they say that by the year 2050, uh, they will be equal with the Christians, and by the year 2070, uh, they will surpass Christians. Uh, clearly, it's an important trend in history. But we are not discouraged. We are geared to another trend. We know that the evangelization of the world determines the history, the end of history. That's what drives us. Uh, Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. You know, when some people think of Muslims, they think jihad. When Christians think of Muslims, we think gospel. They must hear the gospel. Some people think of them as enemies. Christians say, we love our enemies. We must be dreaming, how can we love these people into the kingdom? I'm not so naive as to say that there is no threat. Um, it's real, not only from terrorism, but also from the kind of Wahhabism that has been sent all over the world from Saudi Arabia. It's a real threat. Let governments deal with that. Let Christians go into governments and influence the direction of the government. The church is under a commission. Our master has asked us to go. And we have to be asking, how can we reach these people? I have a great fear. I think a century ago, the social agenda nearly threatened to hijack the evangelistic agenda of the church. 
Today, will nationalism cause us to neglect the largest field of people in need of the gospel? Because they are a threat to us nationally, will we forget the fact that they need the Lord? You know, historically, with radicalism, people are more open to the gospel. Certainly, this has been true with Islamic radicalism. And evidence is that that is so today also, that people are more receptive to the gospel. It's time to show love. You know, Dr. Steve Siemens in his wonderful book, Wounds That Heal, if you haven't read it, read it. Um, he talks about something that happened during the Armenian genocide in Turkey. There, were, there was a group of uh, Turkish uh, soldiers who came with their captain and, um, and um, the, the, the captain allowed, uh, they killed the parents in this family and the other people, uh, the soldiers were allowed to take uh, the girls in the family and do what they want. And the eldest girl in the family was taken by the captain as a sex slave to his house. And she endured untold indignity for a period of months under this wicked man. Finally, she was able to escape and rebuild her life. She became a nurse. And one day in the hospital that she was at, uh, there was a uh, fire nearby and people were brought in. And a man was brought in a coma, almost surely going to die. It was the man who had treated her so badly. And she was asked to look after this man. And she looked after him. And because of her faithful caring, she lived. He lived. And the doctor told this man, <coughs> what a fortunate man you are. Without her constant devotion, you would have never made it. And then the man said, I wanted to ask you for days. We've met before, haven't we? And she said whom she was, who she was. And then he said, I don't understand. Why didn't you kill me when you had the opportunity? Why didn't you just let me die? And she said, because I'm a follower of the one who said, love your enemies. My dear friends, Jesus is the truth. Let's proclaim it. Let's live it. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, what a what a privilege to have come to know the truth. What a thrill to live year by year with you, knowing new truths, increasing in our knowledge and in the joy of a relationship with you. Oh God, who, are, who has given us a savior who is the truth, 
Help us to faithfully proclaim him. Help us to faithfully live the truth. In Jesus' name.